full perception and understanding of that great truth, that it would be the truth that occupies our mind, not merely when singing the song, but throughout the week, that it would be the truths about you and the gospel and your glory and the coming kingdom that would be the dominant influences on our inner life, our inner man, that you would, Holy Spirit, convict us of sin in the ways that we have strayed from walking in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would pull us back onto that right path through your word, that by it we might be refreshed once again in the glory of our great God and of the gospel of Jesus Christ and walk in wisdom and the fear of God, knowing that we have been redeemed not with silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, the blood of Christ. And it's to that end that we ask you now, Holy Spirit, to be our teacher, to be our revealer. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you can go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of Romans. Yes, once again, we are in the book of Romans. I mean, one of these days we'll actually begin at chapter 1 and work our way through. I know we've been jumping in and out of it uh, a little bit lately. And so we're going to do the same thing this morning. Romans 12. You can make your way to Romans 12. Let me begin by saying Happy New Year (laughs) to everyone. This is uh, not only the first Sunday of the new year, but the actual first day of the new year. And I'm going to assume that those who didn't make it in this morning weren't up you know, late last night watching the ball fall and therefore had to sleep in this morning. But you're here. Well, the beginning of a new year provides with us, us for a good time to stop for a moment and consider the direction of our lives and particularly uh, our spiritual lives. It's not uh, uncommon even in scripture and in the sort of the rhythms of humanity to mark special days and special events and special times and New Year's for us is one of those. It gives us a chance again to think, to evaluate, to plan, to consider and all of those things. And we want to know particularly how we're doing in our walk with the Lord. And so I would ask you, how are you doing in this area? Are you content with where you are in your walk with Christ? Do you even think about these things? And in what ways will you plan in this next year to grow and change? Well, in order to consider and to evaluate these things in our lives, to consider these questions, it seems good to briefly consider a passage out of Romans that you're probably well familiar with that sets for us the criteria, an example, uh, an encouragement, an exhortation, to pursue this new year uh, by laying hold of the glories of the gospel and the opportunities we have to know him. Uh, We're going to consider this passage in Romans 12 under two points, uh, how we are to be compelled by the gospel and how we are to evaluate our commitment to Christ. So let me begin by reading it and then we'll make our way through it. Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect." Uh, these are familiar words, and as you know, marking a transition and an emphasis uh, in the writing of the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. And let's begin considering this transition under this title that we are to be compelled by the gospel. The gospel is to compel us into action. He begins with an exhortation. Uh, He begins actually with uh, the word therefore, which tells us that he is now building on everything that he has said up to this point. And he's saying then everything up to this point has led me to this, to urge you, brethren, to consider how you might live in light of the truths that he has just revealed. He says, therefore, I urge you, I exhort you to according to the mercies of God. And the mercies of God then captures well everything that he has just laid down for us. It is the foundation for his exhortation. And it's important that we remember how he begins this call for us to consider our lives and to apply everything that we've learned. 
And it, it lays before us this basic idea that all of our obedience, all Christian obedience, is based on our understanding of the doctrine of the gospel. The gospel necessarily leads to obedience in our life, and our obedience, for it to be true obedience, is necessarily grounded in the gospel. And a brief observation here is that we notice that Paul often builds his letters to the churches uh, on a certain pattern, namely that he lays down the gospel, who we are in Christ, what God has done for us in Christ, and then he brings an emphasis to how that is to flesh out into our lives, how we are to show the reality of our connection to the Christ that he's just explained uh, in our lives. In other words, he establishes a theological foundation of the grace of God in Christ, and then he applies it in practical application to our lives. This is a common pattern, and this again is an important observation, because it's important for us to recognize that our lives are built on a theological foundation, or they should be. They're built on doctrine, it's built on truth, it's built on the reality of who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. One has said the practical must of necessity rest upon a solid theological foundation. Otherwise, it's little more than advice about how to get along in the religious community. In other words, how we think about God and how we respond to God and how we think about the gospel is going to be the foundation for everything else in our lives. Everything is going to flow out of that reality and that truth. And so even as we think about how I introduced this, how we evaluate our lives and how we plan for the future in this next year, it's going to all come down to our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of who God is, what he has done for us in Christ. Or as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 12, the mercies of God, or it could be translated as the compassion of God. And that, again, as I noted, is everything that he's already explained about the gospel. Our understanding of God's rescue of us from sin, our understanding of the atoning death of Christ, our understanding of the resurrection, our understanding of the power of the Spirit and the life of his own, our understanding of being chosen by God and kept by God all through life for a kingdom that has been promised to us, our understanding of the purposes of God in this world of working out all things for his glory. Everything that God has revealed to us about the gospel is to be the foundation and the motivation for how we view our lives, our purpose in this world, and how we evaluate how we're doing. That's the, the observation here. It is the necessary response to sovereign grace. That we are a people who have been rescued we have been called out of this world to live for Christ. He said in chapter 9, verse 16, it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the, one, the, the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And that is the mercy that he is appealing here to hear. Now, that's why Paul had to begin these compassions of God or these mercies of God with an extended section on the ruin of all humanity, the deceptive tyranny of sin. Because when we have a clearer understanding of our condition, we can have a clearer understanding of what we've been rescued from, and we have a greater appreciation for mercy and compassion of God. We have a greater appreciation for sovereignty, for His glory, for His purposes. So it happens then that the clearer we understand the glory and the holiness of God, the deeply, more deeply we'll be made known to feel the corruption of our sin and the glory of having been rescued from it. And it will produce, it should produce, glad submission in our life. So here's the, just the, the opening observation then. That the moral and ethical life of us as believers, of us as professing Christians, is only Christian inasmuch as it's grounded in the gospel is only Christian inasmuch as it understands God's saving grace in Christ. It's only going to be a discerning kind of faith and a discerning kind of obedience to the, to the level that we understand grace, that we understand God, and that we understand truth. If it's not grounded in the gospel, it's going to be superficial, it's going to be moralistic, it's going to be little more than a Christian pep talk. But true obedience in the Christian life is one that's understanding more and more and conforming more and more to who God is as he's revealed in Christ. 
a great failure in much of professing Christianity. And we're going to talk about this more when we actually get into the church of Laodicea. But here I would make just this observation. A great failure in much of professing Christianity is it amounts to little more than religious moralism because it's permeated with a lack of a theological foundation and theological discernment. And because that's the case, many people then can be in the church and feel completely comfortable and satisfied because they have a vague notion of salvation, because they have a vague commitment to the word Bible as being from God as opposed to other books, because they have a somewhat of a, a general commitment to the activities of the church, but it's a life that is not grounded in understanding the mercies and the compassion of God in Christ. And it is then behind the warning, this is why this is an important point, between before Jesus and one of those, those words of Matthew 7, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. He began that section with saying there is a wide path which leads to destruction and a narrow path which leads to life. Those paths are both marked religion and those paths are both marked salvation, and those paths are all have at the end of them being with God when you die, a big sign. But only one leads to that reality, and the other leads to the opposite reality, to be excluded from the life of God. And it all comes down then to understanding the importance of this pattern in Scripture. That obedience and our understanding of the church and our moral life has to be grounded in theological truth, in doctrinal truth, in the reality of who God is and what He has done. So to say that we evaluate our lives in the future is not merely simply to say how we can be better or be good or have some kind of superficial goals. It is to say, how is my knowledge of God's compassion to me in Christ, His mercy to me in Christ, my understanding of His holiness, my sin, His rescue of me, His sovereignty in my life, how is that going to set the agenda and the values of the things that I pursue in this coming days? That's the idea of it here. Now the issue then is this. Many sitting in churches would agree with this as a doctrinal point, but that misses the point in the essence of the command. The question is this, as we move on, that I lay before myself and before you, how does the gospel, how does your knowledge of God and his grace in Christ, how does your understanding of the mercies and the compassions of God to you actually motivate you in your everyday life? How does it influence your inner life? Your thoughts, your attitudes, your convictions, your convictions of doing good things, your convictions of truth, your conviction of sin, your confessions, all of your hopes and your goals. That's what's laid before us. He says, I urge you, brethren, then, by the mercies of God, because of the compassions of God, it should produce in your life a transformation that sets the agenda, the parameters, the goals, the inner reality of who you are and how you see your place in this world. He notes next, then, that we'll be, be, be compelled to a whole commitment. We're compelled by the gospel and compelled to a whole commitment, then. That's what it should produce. He says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, in understanding the compassion of God, in understanding the mercies of God, in understanding the, the gospel of God, it is to cause us to do something, to actually act on it. The natural and necessary result of coming to a true understanding of grace, then, is this key word. Obedience. Obedience. A heart that wants to obey him. One said this, the proper response to the kind of argument conducted, speaking of everything Paul said, is not to speculate upon the eternal decrees or one's own place in the scheme of salvation, but to be obedient. But to be obedient. When we go through Romans 9, 10, and 11, and 1 through 3, and it's not to formulate detailed doctrines of the depravity of man, of the atonement of Christ, of sanctification, progressive, positional, and future in its perfected sense, to, to do any of those things of original sin and so forth. Those are all necessary, but the, but the end result of them is not to get lost in these great mysteries of God and the detail of form, making doctrinal formations, but it is to say that in understanding that doctrine, it is to compel us then to act, to think, to feel, to believe, to live in a certain way. 
And so he says here, then the exhortation is that you are to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice. So note first then that we are called to do something. It's an exhortation to do something, to live, to act, to respond. Paul has already established for us in this uh, unfolding of uh, the gospel up to this point is that the ability to do this and even the desire to do this is because of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers. A work of the Holy Spirit that opens their eyes to see the glory of this grace that God has given to us in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me give you just... One reminder of that, in Romans chapter 8, after he's already established that we have died with Christ, we have risen with Christ, we walk in new life, that the penalty and the power of sin has been broken in our lives, that the law, though it convicts us, even still after it's been bringing us to Christ, and even as believers in Christ, and that we're realizing more and more that even as we groan within ourselves waiting for the redemption of our bodies, we cry out and say, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? that we are then compelled by the Spirit of God to look to Christ and who we are in Him. And he says this in chapter 8. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what it could never do, God did sending His own Son in the likeness of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the law might be fulfilled in us because of Christ, because of our union with Christ, because of the work of Christ, so that we don't walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. In other words, the life of those who are chosen in Christ, those who have been redeemed, have a new complete orientation that is empowered by the Spirit and that is centered on the work of Christ on our behalf and the hope that we have in Him for the future. That's all of chapter 8. That causes us to want to put to death sin and to live as children of God. But the point here is to know that this is then behind. I mean, Paul's already established that point. It's behind the thinking here of this exhortation. He's saying then the mindset on the spirit is going to be the one then that responds to this mercy of God in a way that it views our life here, our bodies, as something to be presented to him in worship. Something to be presented to him in an act of worship. He does not do it for us, but he compels and empowers us by the Holy Spirit. And in saying this then, as he's concluding what he really began back in chapter 118, he's saying then that the Christian life is to stand in direct contrast to the world outside of Christ. The authentically Christian life then is to stand in contrast to the world outside of Christ. Now, interestingly, I just want to make this observation, is that he says we are to present our bodies. Now, body is used in a variety of ways, but here, here this presenting our bodies to God is, is the result of having understood the compassion and the mercies of God, which is a direct contrast to those who are outside of the saving knowledge of God, which he described in chapter 1 in this way. God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. So those who are outside of Christ present their bodies for the indulgence of desires and of the flesh, present their bodies to be lived in a self-ruled way that gives no account to the sovereignty of God, the God as creator, God as moral director of this world because it's his universe God who gives us clear instructions about righteousness. In contrast to the world who lives in that way, he says you are actually to live in a new way, those who have understood God and his compassions and his mercies in Christ, and to present your bodies as a living and a holy sacrifice. You are to live differently than the world. One said this, Holiness of life rarely progresses apart from a deliberate act of the will. While sanctification is gradual in the sense that it continues throughout life, each advance depends on a decision of the will. And it is that decision of the will that comes as a response to understanding who God is and the mercies of God. Another has said this. I like this. Any spiritualizing of the meaning of Christian service is contrary to Paul's intention. He speaks specifically of our bodies and members as given to the service of God. 
This is at the heart of what it means to be sanctified and be engaged in the process of progressive sanctification. It is a spirit-empowered movement of the Christian life towards Christ-likeness and to obedience. And in fact, it is only in this presenting of our bodies as a response to the compassion and the mercies of God that we can prove regeneration in union with Christ in the indwelling Holy Spirit. So it's a life that marks desires that can only be produced by the Spirit. Nobody who does not have the Spirit presents their bodies as a sacrifice of obedience to God because of His compassions and mercies. Nobody, only a believer does that, who can be motivated by those things, not out of gaining anything, but out of an expression of gratitude, of thanksgiving to God for what He has done. Much like what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The generosity overflowed out of an understanding of the indescribable gift that had been received in Christ. And notice another thing about this. One is that it means then that the right response is going to compel us to actually present our bodies, to make decisions, to realize that we are here to live for God in Christ. It also means this idea of body, that we are to present our whole person. He says, you are to present your bodies your bodies. And he's not merely talking about the flesh. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. To say body in this sense, even as he used it later, I'll mention it in just a, a bit or earlier in Romans chapter 6. Body here is really a reference to our whole person. In other words, he's not calling for divided allegiance. He's not saying you can really have and consume and feed inner lust in your heart, but just as long as you're outwardly doing the same thing, right? That would be the exact opposite of what Christ calls us to. On the outside, you appear beautiful but inside you're full of dead men's bones. No, to present our bodies is to say we're presenting our whole person. We're presenting our everything to God. Our mind, our heart, our everything to God. But it is this presentation of our lives to God that is going to be worked out through the instrumentality of our physical being, our concrete relation to the world around us, the things we actually do in this world. Let me just give an example of that. And in Romans chapter 6, he says, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. That's what we are to do. That is the fruit of saying that we have been united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. In that context, which you're familiar with, he's saying again, the opposite of that is to say, well, I've received grace, therefore sin doesn't matter because it's all covered by grace. In fact, if my life is sinful and continues to be more sinful, it just magnifies the grace of God because he has forgiven me. And Paul says that's insane. That's spiritually insane. That's spiritual nonsense. Do you not understand that the gospel is a death to that sin? That your very life, if you are truly a Christian, is defined by your union with Christ? That you have died with Him? That you belong to Him? That you have risen to Him? That your life is not your own? And so here he says then... Again, repeating now in this context, he's saying, so then the mercies of God, these realities, are to cause you to present your body, the whole person of who you are, to live for him. Our bodies, then, are the expression of our spiritual life, the medium, again, through which we express worship and concrete actions in the world. But by recognizing that it's not merely doing, but the whole person... Uh, it's important to make sure then, or he's guarding against the, the idea that somehow God is pleased with actions without, with the wrong motivation. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But what it does say is it's not less. If our motivation is true, and if we really have understood the mercies and compassions of God, then it's going to be evident in what we do, the decisions we make. In other words, it's going to be evident in how we present our bodies in relationships, in marriage, in the home, in the workplace, in society, in the church, and in private. How we present our bodies to God as a reflection of having experienced His mercies and compassion is going to be evidence of the reality of it or the maturity of it. It's how we present to God then to say our bodies is how we present our time to God. How we present our eyes to God. 
how we present our minds to God, how we present our ears to God, how we present our thoughts to God. It's the whole person. It's how we present ourselves to God in pursuing Him in prayer, in the pursuit of His Word, in meditation, in sincere service to others, in self-denial. All of that is behind it here. How do I present my body to God? Do I see my body as being my own, that I occasionally fit God into it? Or do I see my body as the concrete expression of my experience of His compassions in the gospel so that everything that I do, every sphere that I interact with in my life is meant to be for Him and as a reflection of that? Now, he's going to unfold that in many other ways, but just in this immediate chapter, he says it's going to be first marked then by humility. I'm just going to mention these. We're not going to go through it. He says, Do not think then more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but so as to have sound judgment. It's going to present ourselves in being diligent in the exercise of our giftedness, of living in this world as Christ did, under the banner of God's sovereignty and obedience to Him, not seeking our own will, paying back evil for evil, but trusting in the ultimate plan of God to bring justice in His own time and His own way. It means that we are to be of the same mind towards one another, not haughty in mind, in verse 16, but associate with the lowly. In other words, if you could really summarize all of that, the evidence of a mind or a person who has experienced the compassions and the mercies of God, the evidence of that and how we interact into the world and present our bodies to God is this, is humility and service or humility and love. It's in humility that we realize that our bodies are to be in service of others, in service of God. We are then, let me... Move on here. As Paul says, we're to present our bodies. We are compelled by the mercies of God to obey. This obedience is shown in how we present our bodies, how we take action and respond to the work of the Spirit in us who has revealed to us Christ, who has revealed to us the way of righteousness, who has revealed to us the odiousness of sin, who has revealed to us the glories of the kingdom, who has placed in our heart a hope of the things to come, who has caused us to groan within ourselves in a longing to be set free from this body of sin into the freedom of the redemption of the sons of God, who cry out to God as Father and Abba, who know that nothing can separate us from our lo- His love, who don't want sin to reign in our body because it's miserable. How then is this to look? He says, you are to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We are to view our lives then as a sacrifice. That's how we rightly view our lives. Our lives then are to be seen as something offered up to God for his glory, his purposes, and his service. The imagery here is of the sacrifice, of course, brought to the priest. It was a sacrifice brought by the worshiper. It was brought to the, first the tabernacle, then the temple area. Uh, the worshiper laid his hand on the head of the animal, confessed his sin, killed the animal, and then gave it to the priest who then offered it up according to that prescribed sacrifice. The sacrifice was to be costly and it was to be complete. That animal wasn't partly killed. The animal wasn't injured. The sacrifice was killed. Completely, totally dead and then offered up. And so this is the kind of picture that he's saying here. Our lives then are that sacrifice. Remember, we have died with Christ and we are risen with him. The the reflection of that understanding of having died with Christ is that we realize that our life is not our own, but now it belongs totally to him. Our life itself is to be the offering up of a sacrifice of worship to him who sacrificed himself on our behalf. Now, what does this look like? Well, he gives three descriptions, essentially, drawn again from the language of the Old Testament sacrifice. He says it is to be a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. The simple idea here is this, that it is to be a voluntary and ongoing sacrifice. Again, it's the entirety of our lives lived in relationships and the circumstances of life. It's not a singular act of sacrifice like a, like a one-time deal, but it's a whole life given to God moment by moment. It's the reality of our lives devoted to God, not in an occasional sense, but in a total sense. 
It's not my life dedicated to the service of others after I've had enough rest and after I've done my own thing. It's not my life dedicated to the service of others after I've fulfilled my own will and whatever I have left over. It is saying my life does not belong to me. It is a living sacrifice. Moment by moment, every hour, I recognize that my life is a sacrifice to God. It's not an occasional sacrifice. It is the totality of our life. He says it is to be holy. It is a living and a holy sacrifice. And again, using the cultic language or sort of the language of that system of worship, it is a life then that is set apart. In the Old Testament, sacrifices were to be without blemish, and they were set apart for worship to the glorious God of the covenant. It was the best of whatever that sacrifice required. And it was given to God. It was set apart from the use for personal advantage. It was set apart from use for some kind of personal gain or some kind of wealth. It was saying, no, I'm taking this sacrifice and I'm setting it apart. It is holy. It is given to the Lord. It's not for mundane use, my use. It is to be an expression of worship to God and obedience to his commands. That's the idea. Our lives then are to be set apart from the mundane, the corrupt, the superficial to the service and purposes of God. It includes the idea of free from corruption of sin, from a love of the world, something morally and spiritually pure. Our lives are to be given to God as an expression of worship. And that culminates even in this last statement. He says then, your bodies are a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Or something well-pleasing to God would probably be a better translation. You may have that in your margins. The sacrifices in the Old Testament were the best that the worshiper had to offer. It was essentially this. The sacrifices when they were brought were certainly in obedience to God's command. They were to be brought with a humble heart of true contrition of realizing that this sacrifice stood in place of my own sin, the consequences of my own own sin, especially if it was a sacrifice of an animal for blood. It was recognizing that the acceptance of God of this sacrifice was requiring the death of something innocent. And if it was another kind of sacrifice or grain or whatever from the fields, it was to be the best of the produce. And by doing that, it was showing the value of God. It was honoring God as creator. It was honoring God as redeemer. It was honoring God as the provider of all of the things that were enjoyed among his people. And so to bring him the best was realizing, is essentially it was like saying this, is that you are the highest value. Everything you've given to me is secondary to you yourself as my covenant-keeping God. That, that I'm giving you my heart I'm giving you my everything, everything about me. I'm giving to you, and I'm representing that in the quality of the sacrifice that I'm bringing to you. You can see some of the parallels. But before I get to that, which is obvious, but this is precisely what God, through the prophet Malachi, rebuked his people for. They were coming, and they were bringing the least, the thing that cost them the least, he says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If thy, if, then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts. O priest, you despise my name. He says, well, how? They say, how have we despised your name? And he says, you're presenting defiled food upon my altar. You say, how have we defiled you? And he says, and that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord? And then he goes on. He says, but cursed be the swindler who is a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is to be feared among the nations. In other words, he's saying, yeah, you're going through the motions in this sacrifice, but you're not honoring me. You're actually despising me. You're not giving me the best. You're not giving what I acquired. What you're doing is showing me that I mean so little to you in bringing the sacrifice that you can bring me the least, something that will cost you the least or even something that you want to get rid of anyway because you don't really like it and it's not useful to you and you think I'm going to be pleased with that? He says, far from it. I am dishonored by that. That isn't actually an offense to me. And so in that same parallel then, this idea is if we offer ours as a sacrifice to God, We're offering to God our best, not the leftovers, 
The fear of God and true reverence for him was shown in the quality of the sacrifice brought to him that it would please him. And this language is picked up throughout the New Testament. Even in the book of Romans 4.18, he says this, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is well-pleasing to God and approved by men. The one who is living a life with the values of the kingdom of God being manifest in their life by saying it is through pursuing righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit in the life of God's people, in the community of God's people. In 2 Corinthians 5.9, Paul, anticipating the fact of standing before the Lord and giving an account for his life, says this motivates him to live in a certain way. Specifically, he says this, Therefore, we also, as having, having as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, to be well-pleasing to him. Because we're going to present ourselves to him. So if we see our life as a sacrifice, we say, what kind of sacrifice will I be presenting to God when I stand before his throne? When I stand before the king of kings, we just sang about it, and the Lord of lords. What will I have to offer him? What will it show that I valued? What will it show that I pursued? What will it show as the important things to me? Is it something where he can say it honored me? Or will he say it's something you, you despised my salvation? You set aside and despised my mercies and my compassions because you chose other things and you gave me the leftovers is the idea. And again, he uses this in many other places. I won't go through all of them for the sake of time. You get the idea. And so he says here then that your life is to be in response to the mercies of God, deliberately presented to God, as something pleasing to God in the wholeness of who we are, holy and set apart for God. And he says, this is your spiritual service of worship. So we're compelled also then by sincere worship. Now it's interesting here, uh, this idea, this term that's translated spiritual service of worship, and that's how it's translated in the New American Standard, the American Standard, and the English Standard Version. And what they're capturing here is this idea. Actually, literally, it would be your reasonable worship, your rational worship. That's the idea of the term that's being used there. And the idea here, and the reason it's translated spiritual service of worship, is because it's capturing this idea. Is it's the rational or reasonable response of worship by those who have tasted the mercies and the compassions of God. And in that sense, it is a spiritual sacrifice. Some of you may even have, again, a note in your margin. The idea is that the reasonable response of the soul to the real experience of sovereign mercies is to offer him our whole life. That's the only rational thing. In other words, conversely, it's irrational and unreasonable to claim an experience of mercy and God's compassion and yet not be compelled at the most basic level to see your whole life as meant to serve him. That's irrational. It's not even reasonable. It doesn't even make sense. The thing that makes sense, the reasonable and expected response, is that we would see our lives then as belonging to him and gladly lived in his service. And again, I would note that this is the surest and necessary evidence of truly belonging to Christ and of regeneration, is this, a sincere desire to be holy in your inner man. That's one of the most, most essential evidences of experiencing the regenerating work of God. It is to offer to God our lives on the inner man and to truly see, even if we fail and struggle at it, to truly see and know that at the most basic level of who I am, I want to live for him and I want to know him. And I'm grieved that I don't do that as much as I should and I want to. That's the most basic evidence of belonging to Christ. And to say, I want to do that because I've realized that I am a sinner that has been redeemed by the compassion and the mercy of God in Christ. One has said this, to teach that accepting the free gift of God's grace does not necessarily involve a moral obligation on our part is heresy of gigantic proportions. It's heresy. And so therefore this is not a call merely to doing to say it's our rational and reasonable service of worship. But it's a recognition that grace affects the inner man. It works on our deepest affections to be transparently and sincerely offered to him for service. Said another way, we could put it this way. 
Worship is not merely an emotional experience. It's not merely a music experience. It's not merely attendance, not even church involvement, not even doctrinal knowledge, or sincere affirmation of the truths of of the gospel, all of which can be done by an unregenerate person. It is the real and unfeigned and unforced inner response of the desire of the heart to offer to him our lives in obedience. That is the fruit of regeneration. It is to have true sorrow and frustration and conviction when we fail to do so. I know one thing that I try to say very often, at least in our home and and to others, is this. It's not sin and having sin and the struggle with sin that should cause the doubt of salvation or should cause us to question. We sin. Sometimes we sin terribly. Sometimes we sin continually in the same thing. The issue is this. Does that bother you? Does it bother you? Does it wreck you internally? Does it frustrate you? Does it cause you misery? Does it make you continually go to God in frustration and say, Oh, God, help me again. Because if it does, that's actually a good sign. And going back to what I said earlier, one of the surest signs of salvation is a sincere humility before God. Sincere humility that recognizes I am a sinner in need of grace. And I need Christ. So the motivation and spiritual reality behind this and behind the service will be manifested in its character. Its character. That's the idea here, if I could summarize it. And the character of what we offer to God. And isn't this, again, exactly what is dressed over and over again in the New Testament? Negatively, of course, we have many examples in the, the Pharisees and other warnings. But let me give you a positive example. Well, actually, it starts with a negative example. <laughs> Paul says, then, if we exercise our giftedness in the church and we have these great signs, you know the passage. If I have great examples of giftedness or if I have great knowledge or if I have great sacrifice, but I don't have love, it's meaningless. The character of the work of the Spirit is not measured by the amount that we do, but the quality with which we do it. The spiritual quality. Is it done in love? And is it done in love that is a genuine response to understanding the compassion of God that we have received in Christ? Is it giftedness exercised in love? Is it giftedness exercised in patience? Not seeking its own, not bragging, not arrogant, and so forth. That is the character. And so when we give our lives to him as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, and living... It should have that character. It should have then this. This is how we test it. By the qualities of love and its goal, whether it's truly done for the glory of God. And here's how you know if what we do is truly done for the glory of God. You ready? Here's a simple test. How do we act if we don't get the glory? How do we act if someone else gets the glory? How do we act internally? Not outwardly. We might outwardly go, that's great. I'm so glad. And internally being, you know, wrecked, like irritated. How do we act internally? Can we, with a sincere heart and joyful, say, I don't need the glory for that. I don't need that. It it could even sometimes be misdirected. I've struggled with that at times when when somebody says something that they learned from someone else, and I'll think, I've said that. (laughs) I've been telling you that. Well, then that tells my heart, doesn't it? But when we can sincerely say, you know, that's kind of funny, I don't even really care, but I'm so glad that you got that. That's to live for the glory of God. And so that's how we know is is our service to God, if we test it by the qualities of love in response to the compassions of God and to the end of his glory. So here's the question before we move on. Do you have a conscious, intentional goal and motivation to act in love and for his glory in the things that you do? And those, of course, are things you have to ask. Or how about this? Do you evaluate your inner attitudes or your action by God's standard of love revealed in Christ and in Scripture and what is for His glory? Do you evaluate it by the opinion of others or what you know is going on in your own heart? That's the difference. That's the idea. So let's move to the second part. So that is this, the general point then of verse 1, is if we could just get the big picture, is that our understanding of the gospel should compel us to a life of obedience, to see our lives as belonging to God and for his end and his service. And that's how we again evaluate where we are and where we're going. Secondly, and I'll have to go a little quickly through this, but 
and verse 2. We evaluate our lives and we should be consumed, preparing for this next year by how we will grow in conformity to Christ and in our commitment to Christ. And so he says, And do not be conformed to this world or this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let me just note first here. Then that we show this conformity to Christ by resisting the corruption of the culture around us. And by culture, we're not meaning those benign things about the kind of foods you eat and maybe clothes that you wear and so forth. We're talking about those aspects of culture that we live in that do not reflect the fear of God. Those things that are not godly. We could summarize it maybe in this way. That is, do not let your thinking, your patterns of life be molded into the form or habits of the world rather than by Christ. Don't let it be molded by the world rather than by Christ. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Also, it could be translated as this age. This age, then, is really this idea. It refers to the complex of ideologies, philosophies, and aesthetics of the culture. The ways that the, the very tone and ways, the ethos of, of the culture, as well of its, as its ideologies, as well as its philosophies. All of those things that are not informed or shaped by spiritual truth in God's spirit, but the sinful impulses of men, and get this, we have to understand this, the sinful impulses of man and the demonic influences of Satan. Sometimes that is just put off on the side. It seems too primitive. But scripture is very clear that the things that we experience in the world around us that are not of Christ are not neutral. They're not neutral. They are either influenced by God's spirit and restrained by his common grace, or they, whether they be subtle or explicit attacks on righteousness, they are influenced by the adversary that met with Adam and Eve in the garden, our first parents, who wants to move the hearts and the minds and the lives of God's image bearers away from obedience to God and into his own service whether that be entitled religion, whether it be under the banner of debauchery, whether it be under the banner of a moral religious life, but doesn't know God and doesn't know Christ. And so we have the world, when we think of entertainment, entertainment is not neutral. It's not neutral. These shows are designed and created, the dialogue is written by, the situations are formed by and created by people who have a worldview. And that worldview either incorporates the reality of who God is and truth and righteousness or something else. And so we need to recognize that. He says, then don't be conformed by this age. Don't be conformed. He says in Galatians 1.4, you have been rescued by from this evil age. I'm just going to remind you of a few passages as we need to remember these things as we consider, again, some of the things I'll mention in just a bit about how we plan for our new year. Let me remind you of a very familiar passage. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, You formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Understand, the world, the ideologies, and the culture in which we live are informed by something. And here, God says through the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians that the course of this world, the habits, the patterns, the, the, the subtle things behind the workings of the world around us are influenced by a spiritual being who is appealing not to what is true and beautiful and righteous and good, but is appealing to the lust of the flesh so that we would indulge the desires of the flesh and of the mind and as the rest be as children of wrath. So it is a spiritual scheme that is shaped and influenced and systematized in such a way that it would give the most appeal to whatever our fleshly indulgences and lust are. It's a smorgasbord. Take your pick. It's a variety of ideologies that will line up to whatever it is that our flesh wants to gravitate toward and to hold on to. He's saying that is what shapes it. First John 5.19, there is the God of this world. He's referring to 
Satan or the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has done what? He has blinded the mind of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what he's blinded them to. He's blinded them to see any glory in Christ. And as our culture, in our particular circumstance, in our present moment, moves further and further away from any kind of Christian influence on the ideologies and the morality and the standards of our culture, all the more that is going to be not only ignored, but hated, isn't it? We've covered some of that. And so he says, don't be conformed to it. It's a system of values and thinking that is blind to the glory of God in Christ. It is a system of values that does not treasure Christ. It does not acknowledge the reality of full implications of God as creator, of the reality of human sin, of righteousness, and the judgment to come. All of the things that the world, the Spirit, convicts the world of in John 16. Just think of any of the shows that you watch the music you listen to, the movies that you have in your watch list, and consider whether these reflect the truth of God in Christ or influence you in any way to think about things that promote a biblical worldview, that promote you to think more deeply beyond something that's superficial. Consider more importantly whether you can, if you even consider that or that consideration is an influence on what you desire to see and use your time. And yet it goes even deeper than this. He says, do not be conformed to this age, which is really an eschatological statement. We're familiar with that word. In other words, it's a statement that says that there, there are two ages, there are two worlds that are really coexisting right now. That's a terrible word, isn't it? That are, that are a part of our experience. There is this age which is doomed ultimately to destruction, to be upheld to the justice of God, which will be destroyed. All things are going to be destroyed by fire. It is Christ when he returns in Revelation 19 on the white horse, and by the sword of his mouth he destroys all of his enemies. He's saying that is what this age is. He says in 1 John, this world is passing away and also its lust. It's temporary. It's a world under judgment. It's where the sons of disobedience are. It is where the wrath of God is revealed that is this age but he says there's a there's another part this is the eschatological sense is there's a new age that's already dawning that it's already present but it's not yet in its full fruition and that is the age that's introduced by the coming of Christ by the appearing of the son of God in flesh by the revelation of God through the life of Christ and through his death his sin bearing death through his resurrection and through his ascension and even more through the sending of the Holy Spirit and in the sending of the Holy Spirit and in bringing the elect to Christ and in bringing and creating a new people, a new people that are set apart for God, he has made them new creations. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things are come. That's why Paul could say we're in a world that's not, that's under judgment. And so therefore we who are a part of the world to come, we groan within ourselves. We want our freedom. Why? Because we're living in a world that is not the world we're truly a part of. And so it even has the idea, although taking it from a nuanced angle, Paul could say to the Philippians, we are citizens of another country. We don't belong here. That's why you have that language of sojourners in Scripture. You even have that in 1 Peter. We're sojourners here. We're not a part of this world. Yeah, we live in it, but Jesus said, you remember these words, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. You're of a different world. You're of a world that's coming. You have a total different inward reality than the world around you. That's why he says in 1 John, if you can feel completely comfortable in the world around you, then the love of God isn't in you. That's how you can test. As a Christian, you can testify to this reality that the more and more you live in this world, the more strange it feels and the more you want to live it, leave it. Isn't that true? If you're a Christian, that's true of you to some level. So he's saying here, then there is a distinction. You are a new people. You are a new humanity that are united to Christ. You are a part of a new age, an age to come. Everything about you is fundamentally, not superficially different than the world in which you live. Therefore, do not be conformed to it. Don't take on its shape. Don't take on its form. Don't take on... It's thinking and patterns and goals and desires. You are distinct. 
And this distinction that you have is based on the reality of God's nature, His work of God, His work in Christ. And it is this distinction that is our witness to the world. Now, I'd say this. It's not to say that true believers can't get caught up in it, in ignorant and foolish worldly thinking. It is to say that when we do, it will produce inward conflict. That's what it's saying. Yeah, we can get caught up in it. Yes, we can stray off on the side. Yes, we can develop habits. But it means that the Spirit of God is in us opposing the flesh constantly. The Spirit sets His desires against the flesh so that we cannot do the things that we please. And so it's saying that. So as Christians, then, we are to be discerning and to take care and guard our hearts and minds, not to blindly and unthinkingly adopt and take on unrighteous patterns of thoughts and attitudes. Basically, everything that Paul had already laid out in Romans 1 through 3. In other words, we're not to take on the world's thinking about creation and reality. We're not to adopt the world's thinking about human sexuality. We're not to adopt the world's thinking about family, marriage, gendered roles of male and female, husband and wife. We're not to take on the world's thinking about honor and authority. We're not to take on the world's ideas about relationships and dating and marriage and friendships and so forth. We're not to take on the world's ideas of how it defines what's wrong and right. That is all to be shaped by the truth of who God is and what He has revealed to us about Himself in Christ and in Scripture. One said this, speaking of this age, it cannot and must not serve as a model for Christian living. Its values and goals, listen to this, and this is extremely important. We've said it many times, I'll let him say it. Speaking of this age, its values and goals are antithetical to growth and holiness. That's an extremely important statement. The church should stand out from the world as a demonstration of God's intentions of the human race. So here is the question when we think about activities and the things that we do and value. Is this promoting holiness in my life or is it detracting from it? Is it making God more precious or is it making me more dull to the things of eternity? Is it making sin more odious or is it making me more comfortable with it? Is it bringing me more and more into conformity to what is holy and beautiful and righteous and true? Or is it making that seem more and more strange and undesirable? We have to understand that the entire culture, and this is we need to understand in order to be wise, not to check out, not to isolate ourselves, but to be wise, is set against what will grow in holiness. I know I've said this, and I'll just lay it out there as a general principle. I, I do not understand how we can involve and commit ourselves to things like social media and grow in holiness. The very idea of much of it is to focus on myself. The very idea of posting things is to say, me. I, I can't even conceive in my head how a Christian could see that promotes holiness and self-denial and humility and exalts Christ. But these are the kind of things that we need to ask ourselves. And we all have various areas where we do that. The reality is, if we're not careful then our conscience will begin to be more influenced and informed by culture standards than God's standards. That sensitivity to right and wrong will be less informed by what God says in His Word, and it will be more informed by whatever we're filling our minds with, particularly with media. That's huge, because we're a media-saturated culture. Let me go quickly and make some of these last points. But what's the positive side? He says, so don't be conformed. You're not a part of this age. You don't belong to this age. You belong to another age. So he says, do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, just a note here. Some make a very sharp distinction between, between the ideas of conformed and transformed. 
And, and there is some distinction. There's a lot of overlap in the usage of these terms, but there is some nuanced distinction. Whereas conformed can, can kind of edge towards the idea of being shaped by what is passing, what is temporal, what is not uh, long-lasting. Whereas transformed has the idea slightly towards, in its usage, towards what is eternal, what is essential about something, being shaped to that. But in either case, there's really no need to make a sharp distinction, although there is some, and so it's important to recognize it. But he says, be transformed, be shaped by, be pushed in the direction of, be molded by, in the totality of your person, the renewing of your mind. Primary point is this. The arena of spirituality, of spiritual reality, is what takes place in the mind and in the inner man. If we would grow in our relationship with God, in wisdom, in fellowship with Him, then our minds must be constantly renewed into likeness of Christ. Behind this command is the reality that our minds are still infected and bear the corruption of fleshly thinking, of sinful patterns of thinking. We have within us the temptation to indulge and to take on the thinking of the world since it naturally gratifies the flesh. And he says, don't do it. Go in a different direction. It means then, the means of this transformation is the word of God. It's the word of God revealed and empowered by the Spirit to bring change. Here's a simple point. As a Christian... You and me, we cannot grow spiritually, we cannot learn discernment, we cannot grow in wisdom and maturity without scriptures being the greatest influence on our thinking, period. You can't. It's impossible. If you are not spending more time in scripture and in prayer, you will not grow or mature as a Christian, period. If that is a minor part of your life, you will not grow. You will not have wisdom. You will not be convicted, period. Showing up at church one day out of the week is not going to do it. Checking in with your Bible every now and then right before you fall asleep is not going to do it. It's just not. We have to have our minds saturated. Because I'll tell you what, our minds are being bombarded with other messages all day long. From the moment we wake up until we go to bed. How are we counteracting those? That's the issue. And it's only by the word of God. Spiritual growth and spiritual reality is not proven and does not happen by nice feelings, emotional experiences, or even agreeing with good, right doctrine, or even having good intentions. None of those things will produce spiritual growth. They'll make us feel good about ourselves because we have the right intention, but they will not produce spiritual maturity. It only happens when we actually, really, truly spend time in Scripture, in prayer, in exposing our minds to what is good and holy to God, it only happens when we make actual decisions to say no to time wasters, to the superficial, and say yes to those things that actually draw us near to God and expose us to present and eternal realities and produce maturity in our souls. It won't happen until we actually do it. Not until we want to do it, not until we recognize we should do it, not until we tell others to do it, but when we actually make decisions to be alone with the Bible and God in prayer and the reading of his word. Period. That's the only way it will happen. The location of this transformation when we do that is the inner man. One said, real and lasting change comes from within. This is where sanctification comes in. So the question is then, is transformed by the renewing of your mind, is this. What consumes your thought? Or maybe I could ask this. This might be even a little bit. How are you in your mind, in your inner man, battling for truth and for an understanding of God in Christ? How is that actually taking place? What thoughts are you actually fighting because you know that they're not leading to holiness? What are you actually doing? It's not merely a matter of changing habits, although it includes that but of presenting our minds and our hearts and our lives before the word of God with an attitude of submission, ready to be changed by him. And that actually is the idea here. It's a passive form. We won't get into that. But it is the idea that I'm presenting myself to be changed with a willing heart to let him do his work within me. That's what we should be pursuing. So the basic question is, then, do you believe this? And if you do, how is it reflected in your life? What do you find yourself dedicating most of your time to? And be honest, not right answers. And this would be before you and the Lord. But honestly, before the Lord, take an honest account and say, what is it that I actually care about and think about? 
What would I actually be willing to give up in order to spend more time in Scripture? Those are the kind of questions. And then he says then, when we do that, and again very briefly, then we will prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And he's not saying prove to outside world, prove to others. The idea here is of testing. It is that by doing and responding obediently to this truth of God, we will within ourselves come to know the power of that truth and that submission to him and know that going the way of Christ is the good and well-pleasing way. Drawing from the language of Proverbs 3.17 in reference to wisdom, her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all who hold her fast. It is to say we will prove that it's morally good, delightful to the soul, whole and complete, lacking nothing. So that being said, let me end with this. What are your goals for the next year? What are your spiritual goals? How will you pursue growth in Christ? How will I? I'm asking myself these questions. How about this? What areas of sin or superficiality in your life do you need to address and repent of? Do you even want to do that? Or are you content to go on as you are? Or I could ask, how will you dedicate your life more fully to Christ and his kingdom to knowing God? We have to ask ourselves those questions. And to help with that, uh, there is a bulletin insert with a list of questions that I ran across that are very helpful. And I would commend them to you uh, to consider thoughtfully and with this idea in mind to say that, well, my life is to be lived for God. I'm to present my body to him. And so I want to see and recognize the ways that I'm not doing that and that I can grow. And if in my heart and my soul I feel a resistance to that because I don't really want to do it, then we pray and confess God and we say, God, help me. This is what I feel. I know it's wrong, but help me to walk in the way of righteousness that is good and well-pleasing to you. And we ask him to apply these things to do that by saying this first and foremost, God, help me to understand the mercy and the compassion that I've been shown in Christ. Help me to grasp that, that I would gladly and without inner resistance in my affections submit and want to yield my life completely and wholly to yours. Even if I give up things that the culture says are okay, but I know are not producing holiness in my life. May God be merciful to us and gracious to us to help us in this. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we are not left to do these things alone and that we are not left to achieve a certain level of this before we're accepted by you. And that is the very point of the mercies and the compassions of you in Christ. We are accepted in Christ. Christ, you have atoned for our sin. You have given your life as a sacrifice on our behalf. We are counted righteous in you. We are justified. We can earn nothing from you. We can add nothing to your righteousness. We can add nothing to our standing before you. But we can reflect your glory and your worth. As we ask you and appeal to you to please reveal to us your great glory and compassions and mercies in Christ. And that you would call us out of any sleep that we have been lulled to in by our culture to really taste and see the wonder of those eternal realities and truths in Christ. And to know that we belong to a home that is not here. Here we're engaged in a war. Our rest is future, not now. And so stir these things up in us. Help us. And Lord, if there are any here who don't know you, who hear these things and simply don't care, would you convict them and show them that this world is passing away? Would you show them the vanity and the futility of it and call them to rightly access their lives before you and your word, rightly acknowledge their sin and appeal to Christ for mercy? And for the one who does, we know, as you said in chapter 10, they will not be disappointed. And so, Lord, help us in these things for your glory and for our joy in Christ. And we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.